Well, if you have a, a Bible with you this morning, I would ask you to turn into it or turn it on, as the case may be, uh, and find that 88th Psalm. It's good to worship with you this morning. Uh, I bring you greetings from Boulevard. Uh, I want you to know that we pray for your church regularly, publicly, as part of our worship service. We, we often pray for, for the way and other churches in Springfield. We, we consider ourselves co-laborers with you, brothers and sisters in arms. And we pray that God would continue to bless the ministry of the way here in, in Springfield. We know with confidence that, that He will grow His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This morning, as you're turning to Psalm 88, let me just tell you that this is not one of those sugar stick messages. All right, there are some preachers that when they go to other churches, they take their best sermons, the one that has all of the funniest jokes and the most convicting illustrations, and they, they bring that with them, they dust it off, and they, and they kind of deliver it to uh, this church. This is not that. I was, I was pleased and, and honored when, when Seth asked me to preach as you guys were going to be considering and studying the Psalms, and I actually asked him if I could preach from this Psalm. I know, I'm a glutton of punishment, and you'll see that very soon, um, but I think unless we consider Psalm 88 and other Psalms like it, we can walk away from the Psalms having a very anemic view of God's Word, an anemic view of the Christian life as a whole. This isn't typically one of your favorite psalms, but I do believe it is one of the fundamental psalms. This is a psalm of lament, an expression of sorrow, of, of sadness, an expression that is far too unfamiliar with many Christians and many churches today. And we'll get into some of the reasons as to why I think maybe that is uh, but if you were here this morning looking for something light or sweet or cheery, I'm afraid that's not on the menu. So let's take a breath, read this psalm. I'll, I'll read it, I'll pray for it, and we'll dig into it. All right? The word of the Lord says this O Lord, God of my salvation. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. They are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? 
Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or as some translations have put it, darkness has become my only companion. Would you pray with me? Most righteous and heavenly Father, we know that all Scripture is breathed out by You. That it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and, ev- and ready for every good work. So Father, I pray that through your power and your word you would speak, you would teach, you would correct, you would train, you would ready us to walk in righteousness. In Christ's name, amen. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Those are the words of a man in darkness. A man who knew loss and sorrow and despair. A man who spent 17 months in a torturous Burmese prison, suspected of being a British spy. His first three children died before age three. One at childbirth, another about 18 months, and the third lived to be two and outlived her mother by six months before she died. This man fought a battle with 108 degree weather with cholera, malaria, dysentery, and unknown miseries that would go on to take the life of his second wife and four more children. After the death of his second wife, He wrote in a letter home to one of her relatives, My tears flow at the same time over the forsaken grave of my dear love and over the loathsome pit of my own heart. In the days that followed, he dug a grave beside the hut that he was living in and would sit by it day and night to contemplate the stages of decomposition of a corpse. Hard to imagine a deeper darkness, a greater sorrow and suffering than what this man experienced. And, and there, as he was laying among the grave, he wrote the words, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. What do you do when you cannot? Look through the windows of faith and see God. 
when there seems to be no sign of his presence, no sign of his favor, when you cannot hear his voice saying, I am with you. What if the darkness is too dark and the doubts are too loud? What if death is all around you, that you've lost family or, or your home? What if, what if deceit has come into your marriage? What if betrayal has come from friends? What if you've faced the, the loss of loved ones, the loss of respect, the loss of health, or, or if you've lost the, the use of your faculties or, or your freedom, or you've lost the future that you had planned for yourself? What if you're just getting old? getting weary, or just perpetually lonely. That is the reality of this psalm. Everything I've just mentioned in one degree or another is is related to in this psalm. Of all the psalms in the Bible, this one is the saddest. It is the darkest Of all the psalms, of which about 40%, believe it or not, are actually laments, this is the only one that contains no resolution, no positive remarks, and no concluding praise. It's the only psalm in which there is no light at the end of the tunnel. This is a lament for those who can find no answers to their questions, No healing for their disease, no resolution to their problems. There seems to be no way up and no way out of the darkness. And yet if we will have the eyes to see it, there are even the smallest rays of light breaking into this darkness. This is a psalm that has much to say to believers who face sorrow and suffering in this life and to those who would seek to comfort those in the darkest of sorrows. Reminds us that even when the darkness is deepest, even when our doubts are the loudest, God hears us. All of us. Maybe today, maybe next week, maybe next year, need to be reminded that even when darkness hides his face or or crowds out your hopes, it does not deafen his ears. You may not be able to see him, but he hears you. How do we know that God can hear us in the darkness? Well, look at how honestly in this psalm he, he describes it. Verse 1 and 2 open with, with an appeal, a prayer, an ongoing prayer. But as we, as we read it, what has the most significant impact is, is not so much the appeal and the, the urgency and the, the ongoing nature of it, but it's his appraisal of the situation. He says in verse 3, For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set of loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Do you hear the depth of this darkness in his life? He's saying, my life is in the pits. I've got one foot in the grave. And and while I suspect that there there are few of us who would be honest with this much 
with others about feeling this way, but I wonder, do you know these words? Do you know what it's like to feel that you've been thrown into a pit and despite your scratching and clawing, you simply can't get out? I mean, all the metaphors are here in Psalm 88. The grave, the pit, paralysis, crashing waves, it's all here. He knows the weight of despair that drags you down and never lets you up. That as hard as you try to fight for air or rest or or anything to hang on to, that, that more water comes in your lungs and more weight is on your heart, this is a deep darkness. But if you've ever dealt with with times of despair, you know that despair does a wicked thing. It doesn't just pull you down, it pulls you apart. And we see that too, that this depth is accompanied by by distance. The psalm says in verse 8, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. He'll even use the same words as as the psalm comes to, to an end in verse 18. My beloved and my friend... Shun me, my companions have become darkness. My friends are nothing but darkness. If you've gone through something like this, you you know how this can go. That the phone calls and the cards tend to stop long before the pain does. The friends who once dropped everything to sit with you at the hospital now have soccer games or or PTA meetings to lead in, and you suspect that those who once talked to you in your pain are now talking about you in your pain. You you get the impression that you've become something of a a byword or a cautionary tale. The things you once joked about with them or, or, or did together no longer seem to bring you together. You feel distant. The widow that can no longer go on the group date nights. Or the loss of a child that makes play dates a little too difficult. Conversations about the ongoing pain, the the lingering difficulty make conversations hard. And so over time, they cease. Despair, depression, an unceasing trial, they have a a terrible ability to isolate us. Your your pain is, is shouting so loud that all you can hear is you. You're not trying to be selfish. You're not trying to make things all about you. But, but in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your depression, the, the, the temptation is to not be able to even look beyond what it is that you are going through. This psalm is for you. This is a deep darkness. It seems to have alienated him from his friends and even from God. And and, and though he, he wonders if God cares for him, he is absolutely certain of the direction of his suffering. He knows exactly where it is coming from because he knows that God is sovereign over even his suffering. Look at the language in verses 3 to 9. He's essentially saying, Lord, you're doing this. 
That God is behind this. He, he, he feels like he's got one foot in the grave and he feels like he's being pushed there and he, and he identifies the pusher. Verses 4. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. Verse 6. six you have put me in the depths of the pit. And the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. The psalmist never considers for a moment that God is not in control. He's not saying like the world might say that, you know, sometimes bad things happen to good people. You're, you're a good person. God has, has nothing to do with this. He, he'd, he'd love to help you out, but he, he just can't. This caught, caught him off guard too. That if you can just come to terms with the realization, they say, that, that God isn't in control of everything, that He is not in control of your circumstances, then there is comfort there. There is no comfort there. Because either you have a God that is sovereign over every circumstance, or you have a God that cannot help. And so that's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist knows that God is sovereign. If you've ever read the book of Job, you know that never once does Job entertain the thought that God is not in control of his life. In fact, the whole wrestling of the book of Job is precisely because Job knows that God is in control of his life. And he, he wants to know, Lord, what are you doing? Nowhere does Job get comfort from the thought, oh, you didn't realize I was here. You didn't know I was in this mess. Say what you will about this psalmist, he never sp starts to spout drivel like that. He never tries to find comfort from saying, oh, I get it now. I'm on my own in this. No, over and over, the psalmist acknowledges that God is in charge. And only this could explain why the psalmist keeps Going back. He keeps crying out. The, the pain doesn't stop. The problems don't let up. There, there is nothing to suggest that any respite has come to this man, Haman, the, the writer of this psalm. He says, I cry out day and night before you. Every day I call upon you. I, oh Lord, I, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Verse 17, they surround me like a flood all day long. We want suffering to be like pregnancy. We have it for a season and then it's over and we have something beautiful to present at the end of it. Some moral, some lesson, some pearl of wisdom. But what if the end doesn't come? What if the darkness doesn't let up in this life? 
What all of us want to know as you continue to cry out, as you fight for normal in the midst of crushing news of more hard, the one question that that you're going to ask is, God, do you hear me? Do you know the depth of my darkness? Do you know the distant chasm that continues to grow between my loved ones and I? Do you know how alone I feel in all this? God, do you know? Can you hear? And when we reach this point, when these are the questions that we have and this is the darkness we face, we need Psalm 88. Because we need a God who is not going to merely brush it off and say, oh, it'll be okay, get over it. If you're in this kind of darkness, that's not what you're looking for. Some, some cliche. Move on. Get over it. At that moment, you need to know that God understands the pain. That there is a point in life, there, there may come an occasion, a, a darkness so deep that all you want to know is, God, do you get it? Do you see me here? Can you hear me crying out to you? Do you you understand this? And Psalm 88 is the word from our Father saying, I know how deep the darkness gets. I mean, he's the one that inspired Haman to write this psalm. He put the words in the psalmist's mouth. He knows where you are that you can't even see the light of day anymore. He is the one that gives you words to express in the darkness. And our God is so tender and so courageous that He allows things like this to be said in His holy word, that there is a darkness that may come to us that that seemingly has no exit We can name the pain that we're facing because we have such a God that even when we cannot see Him, He hears us. This is a dark psalm, but it's an honest psalm. And I think even as dark as this psalm is, there's a bit of light coming under the door. And I want to spend our remaining time together teasing that out a bit. I want us to see the light of, of grace that breaks into even the darkest of times. Because I think there are at least three glimmers of light here. Three rays of grace, if you want to call them that, that we can find in in this 88th Psalm. And and even if they don't look like light to you, even if what you're going through is is so dark that you can barely even hear me this morning, the, the truths that I want to share to you, maybe they can be railings for you to hang on to in this season. And it all hinges around this fact. He hears us. And it's okay to cry. 
Now, I suspect for some of you, this psalm and, and these thoughts were not first on your mind when you awoke this morning. That when you got up and got ready for worship, you, you weren't thinking about this kind of a, a psalm and this kind of an honesty. I, I don't know you well enough to know that, that if there are some of you that, that their pain and the darkness is so near the surface in your life that it took every ounce of willpower for you to get dressed and come this morning. But I don't rule out the possibility that the darkness that you are enduring is fresh. The pain that you're facing has been bubbling up all week long in your family life, in your, in your job, among your friends, and even in worship this morning. For others of you, I think maybe you're the professional pressure cooker. You've got the strength that when it, when it comes to holding down your fears and, and your despair and the, the death of your dreams, you can hold them down so tightly. But as you hear this psalm, as you hear the honesty and the, the darkness of the pain of this psalm, that, that maybe for the first time, some of the pressure has, has escaped. And there's maybe even just the, the smallest bit of relief. Now, I'm going to say this again in case you didn't hear me. It's okay to cry. I know that's not popular among men. We want to be masculine. We want to, we want to be, be stoic and, and immovable. But that's not what this psalm says. Some of you, you're able to cry at the drop of a hat, and you're willing to drop the hat, I suspect. is. But this is more than just shedding tears this is about crying out to God, and it takes all forms. He, he cries out to God in this psalm. He, he petitions God in this psalm. He complains to God in this psalm. He blames God in this psalm, and it even sounds like at times he is approaching condescension in his questions. He says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? If your wonders are done in the dark, does anyone see them? That's his question. And yet this is the kind of grace that God has. He is big enough and tough enough and tender enough to take your Cries. He'll take your questions. And so if you're looking for permission to cry out to God because your life stinks right now, because nothing is going right, you have his permission. It's right here in the word of God. You don't need my permission or the permission of a pastor or even your own permission. God has given you this permission to go to him when you're hurting, when the pain won't quit, when the light won't come. But it's not merely that we have his permission. Remember the first thing we read about Psalm 88, and I skipped it this morning as I was reading it, is that this is a song. Look at that. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalathoth Laamoth, a masculine, a Haman of Haman the Ezraite. He's saying there is a place for Psalm 
88. It's, it was to be sung among the people of God as they worship God. It was to be part of the liturgy of the people of God. It was to be formative in the gathering of the people of God. They were taught to sing these words. They were being taught to cry out to God. They were being taught to mimic these cries of this psalmist. Carl Truman, about 10 years ago, wrote an article, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? He said, Now one would not expect the world to have much time for the the weakness of the psalmist's cries. That it's, It's very disturbing, however, when the cries of lamentation disappear from the language and the worship of the church. He said, Perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is in terms of numbers, in terms of influence, in terms of spiritual maturity. He says, perhaps, and this is more likely, that it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing. He says, yet the human condition is a... Poor one. And Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country should know this. If we begin to exclude the cries of of loneliness and desolation from our worship, then without knowing it, we have effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are lonely and desperate. That we've managed to tell them that there is no place for them among the people of God. Unless they become healthy and happy and prosperous and successful. And isn't that contrary to the gospel that we preach? So let us instead in our discipleship and in our worship say, it's okay to cry. Your cries are not forbidden. That's the first ray of hope of this passage, that your cries are not forbidden. The second one is your cries are not the signs of failure. Now, like I said, most of us don't think of this as your favorite psalm. And most of us don't turn to the psalms of lament early in our Christian walk. We tend to gravitate towards the joyful psalms, the psalms of thanksgiving and and praise. And for most of us, it takes a while. It takes pain and heartache and wrestling with difficulties for most of us to turn to Psalm 88. But when we do, When we recognize that the Christian life is not always filled with prosperity or unceasing happiness, when we realize that the brokenness of this world and the needs of our own heart, that's when we go to psalms like this one. When we see that the the victory in the Christian life is most often displayed in endurance, And that endurance comes only by grace. And if it only comes by grace, then why would we not cry out to God? 
Now, for some, that's a hard pill to swallow, to tell someone that it's okay to cry, that, that we, we sound like we're giving them permission to become whiners, that we're giving them permission to be grumblers. And even for, for some of us in our 10, 20, 30 years of, of Christian experience, perhaps we've never experienced anything like they're going through. And, and so we assume that their cries are either a lack of maturity or a lack of faithfulness, or, or some fault of the individual. But that's not always the case. Let me tell you something about the author of this psalm. Haman the Ezraite. I always want to call him He-Man. But when God wants to tell you about how wise he would make Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4, he names the five wisest men in the world at that time, and he says Solomon was wiser than all of them. And one of those five was Haman the Ezraite. That's how smart this guy was. That's how wise this guy was. This was a worship leader among the people of God, and he knew that spiritual maturity includes lament. Consider Job's counselors. They were the greatest counselors in the world until they opened their mouths. For three days, they let Job express himself to anguish and, and lament, and then they jumped in and said, you know, this is all really your fault. You need to get over it. You need to fix this. You need to repent. Surely you've gotten yourself into this mess, so you need to get yourself out. And do you understand how contrary to the gospel that is? Because you cannot get yourself out. You cannot fix some of the things that you're in your life. Even if some of the things in your life are consequences of your own mistakes, your crying out to God in and of itself is not a failure. That may be your first right thing to do. Your repentance, your, your lament over the situation may be the very place that you start. I wonder if you would be surprised to know that the man I spoke of when I began this morning, the man who suffered so much, who said, I believe in God, but I can't see him, who's despaired literally at times, he would lay in a grave, was the human agent through which God brought about the largest Christian force in Burma or Myanmar. And his name was Adoniram Judson. Familiar with that name? By God's grace through his ministry and the legacy that followed, there are now 3,700 congregations in Burma and there have been an estimated 617,000 believers who can trace their spiritual lineage back to Adoniram Judson. And he said... Where is God? I cannot see Him. The depths of the darkness that I am facing prevents me to be able to see the God in which I believe. What if crying out to God in your despair is not a sign of failure? And what if by, by this guidance of the Scripture we come alongside one another, not as, as drill sergeants with a program of, of enforced stoicism? but as fellow sufferers under the curse. 
What if instead of telling our hurting friends and, and neighbors that, that are, they're believers that, that they're continuing to, to pain and cries are, are, are hurting their Christian witness and instead we said, I'm sorry that what you're going through. And I, I, I don't know why it is that you are in what you are in. I don't know what's going to fix this. But I see that you are hurting. Christians have more right to be upset about the state of affairs than any other people because we rightly know how bad things are, how broken the world is, and how bad we are. And so in the middle of it, God says, it's okay to cry, to cry to Him. The third thing, the last piece of of hope that I think shines through this text is the reason God says what he says here in the middle of what you are going through is because he will affirm what he will say later. That if God is is so honest, if he knows the darkness, if we can recognize the the truth of, of this feeling so plainly in the pain, then what he says about relief and what he says about rescue and what he says about redemption must also be true. If he's honest about the darkness, we can trust him about the light. You would not trust him if he did not understand every dimension of your hurt. You would not believe he was true if it was happy, happy, happy all the time. But because he's honest about the darkness, you trust him when he says things like the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. From everlasting to everlasting, I am God. And so when the immediate and the temporary makes no sense, we say that he says that, and it is true that we will trust him. When he says there's more coming, the greatest sign of grace in this psalm is that this psalm is not the last psalm. Well, whatever you're going through, may seem like the end. It is not the end. These words of of Psalm 88, the, the groaning, the crying, the praying, the questions, the pleading, those are not the final words. The very position of this psalm in the Bible helps us to understand this. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. Because typically, if you're like me, you kind of cherry-pick your way through the psalms. You go to the ones you like or the ones that seem to fit what you're going through. But there's actually a progression in the entire book. It's divided into five books. And in the first book of the psalms, Psalms 1 through 41, they they recount the blessings of God through the kingdom and the blessings of of David and the promises to David. And then there's book 2, Psalm 42 through 72. It's kind of a, a continuation. It's, it's the dancing of joy as, as God continues his blessing through Solomon. Then you get to book 3, chapter 73, Psalm 73 through 89. And this, Psalm 88, is towards the end of book 3, and everything is coming undone. The promises to David that that seem so sure at the beginning are starting to unravel. There's an enemy at the gate. There's a crisis. There's exile and captivity and darkness. And you read things like, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. 
when there was only darkness. But then you get into book four and you're taught how, how do you hope when the Messiah is not there? How do you continue on, on the promises until the Messiah comes? And then book five is almost entirely praise and joy. But in the darkness, in the, the darkness, that the depression, the sorrow, the suffering, we need to remember that this isn't the last word. Your cries are not the last word. There will be hope. Praise will come again. But we need to know that, that it's visible here, even in the, the presentation of this psalm. But you don't just find this psalm in a place of worship. You also find it in a house of torture. If you ever go to Israel, there is an awful and wonderful place called the house of Caiaphas, the house of the high priest. He was the one, as you may recall, who, who tried and tortured Jesus before he sent him off to the Romans. And if you go to his house, they've, they've excavated it underneath, and, and what they found are some, some stables that have kind of cut into the hillside where it slopes away. And, and in the rock there, in these cave stables, um, there, down low there are these hitching posts where they would tie up their, their horses or their animals. But then there are some hitching posts that are up higher, carved into the rock, where men would be tied and tortured in the house of the high priest. What darkness. But that's not the worst of the darkness Lower down in the same house is a grain pit where, where they would store grain that had been turned into a holding cell where men were thrown down, held down either by broken legs or the darkness of that pit and so that their wills and their spirit would be broken and it is within all reasonable that our Lord would have been thrown down into that pit. Now there are stairs that lead to the bottom for tourists. And in that room, there is just one thing, a book. And in that book is one psalm written in dozens and dozens of languages. And can you guess what that psalm is? It's Psalm 88. So that wherever you're from, wherever you, your language is, whatever you're going through, you can read where our Lord was held and, and would have probably even cried out these words, O oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to shield. You have put me in the depths of of the pit in regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? It means so much when you begin to realize that this psalm, though it reflects much of our life, reflects our Lord's sufferings. This is not just what we experience. This is what Jesus entered for your sake and for mine. 
And so the reason that we cry out to him is not just simply because he, he knows the darkness, but because he would enter the darkness. He would know physically the depth of our darkness. He would know the sin and the disease and the pain that had distanced us from fellowship with our brothers and sisters and how much it had isolated us from him. He knew the sovereignty and justice of God in all things, and he knew how long we had waited so that we would know that He hears us in the darkness. He doesn't merely lift us out of it. He enters in it. So what does that mean? It means that if you are in Christ, you can weep like Christ wept. You can cry out for God like Jesus cried. You can endure deep sorrows because Jesus was a man of sorrows. His cries were not forbidden when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't failing or falling. He was teaching us what it meant to understand how unnatural sorrow is. How far the curse had spread and how something needed to be done. And he endured the darkness that lasted for three days and rose at dawn on the third day to tell us that our darkness is not final. Our cries will not get the last word. All of this, this psalm, it it means that no matter how deep your darkness, no matter how loud are your doubts, Our Lord hears us, and it is okay to cry. Would you pray with me? Father, we are afflicted in every way, your word says but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. That we are to carry in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies, Paul says, Lord. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal death. For this light, momentary affliction that doesn't feel light, it doesn't feel momentary, it feels long and deep and dark. But even so, Lord, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond the things we can see. Lord, we, the here and now can hurt. Our lives can stink. They may be bad. We find thorns and thistles and sickness and death around every corner. But help us to remember, Lord, that even when we cannot see you, you still hear us. In Christ's name.